Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Gathering Movement interview series. Thank you for being here, Earl. It was so fun to just like talk to you behind the backstage for a little bit for a few minutes. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, as I was sharing with you before, like really this mission is one of empowerment, one of hope, one of inspiration. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about your kind of origin story to how you became the person that you are today. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, and I've been doing a lot of these podcasts since, uh, you know, COVID started and I, I really enjoy doing them. And, uh, well, my name is Earl Granville. Um, I'm born and raised in, uh, Scranton, just outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania. So if you guys watch the office, that's where I'm from. <laughs> and I love that show, by the way. Um, what I do now, I tell you what, I'm, I'm a student at the university of Scranton for counseling and human services. I, uh, I'm a team member for organizations such as Operation Enduring Warrior, the Oscar Mike Foundation, and uh, Warrior Strong. And all these organizations in their own special way, they help uh, help veterans and some law enforcement stay active after their injuries and after they were hurt in the line of duty. And uh, I play sled hockey for an all-wounded veteran team called uh, the USA Warriors. Our, our home base is in Washington, D.C. And... I suck at hockey, guys. <laughs> I'm like the worst sled hockey player. <laughs> I just get out there and have fun, man. You know? <laughs> but let me back up a little bit. I'll tell you what kind of got me here today and you know what I, how I live this life now. My senior year of high school, I graduated from Carbonell Area High School, just like I said, outside of Scranton. And my twin brother, Joe, was talking about joining the military. And Joe thought about, you know, what I thought of joining. And I was like, that's not for me, man. That's... You know, that's not my uh, cup of tea. I don't see myself being a soldier or Marine or anything like that. I, I mean, growing up going to punk shows and playing guitar just a little bit. And like that kind of seemed my realm. Like, you know, oh, after government, I'm not, you know, I'm doing that. <laughs> well, the incentive got me, uh, make me join the military, literally flat out. People could take it any way they want was a free education. Now, I, was, I don't have any scholarships lined up. I know I wanted to further my other education after high school, but um, I kind of thought, you know, I'm not going to pay for this. Uh, how am I going to pay for it? It looked like the military was able to. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll do my minimal contract. Basically, my mindset is what can the military do for me? Hmm. You know, and uh, I maybe it was just a 17-year-old attitude I had at the time. Uh, Joe and I graduated high school. Had a nice summer. We landed in Fort Benning, Georgia for boot camp. Um, September 1st, 2001. You guys all know what happened 11 days later. So here we are in Fort Benning, Georgia, becoming infantrymen, and the towers got hit. And uh, I realized this wasn't about the college money after that. Yeah. Um, but I still have that punk attitude. I feel like I looked at Joe. I was like, dude, I didn't sign up for this. Like, this is not what I wanted to do, go to war or anything like that. And I remember Joe just being hardcore that first day. Um, and when we finally actually went down, down range to, you know, deal with drill sergeant stuff like that, you know, we're getting smoked and he's on the other side of the room. And I just looked at my brother and I was like, dude, I don't want to do this anymore. What did you get me into? Kind of sign up for this. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I mean, like I said, I think it was just my attitude at the time. Well, 
We graduated basic training, became infantrymen, and after three weeks of being home because we we're National Guard, I was looking at you know going to college, but we got orders for Bosnia. And any guys unfamiliar with the Bosnian conflict, um, in the early 90s, there was a, I don't want to say a civil war, but there's a lot of, somewhat of a genocide going on. Hmm. Um, I won't go too deep into it, but if you want to learn more about the Bosnian conflict from 92 to 95, read the book, Love Thy Neighbor by Peter Mass, hmm. to really understand what these people were going through. And um, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I was alive during that. You know, like I said, I was a kid. I was, I was just about to be a teenager, and I had no idea any of that was going on in Eastern Europe at the time. So it just kind of here we are. I'm an adult now, going over there, and our the time we were stepping foot over there, my unit. I mean, the fighting was pretty much done. NATO forces were over there just to make sure the fighting stopped or didn't pick back up. So there's no real threat to us. Um, very easy deployment. Uh, it was, you know, my first time leaving the country. Beautiful land over there in Bosnia. Um, you know, it was pretty neat. And, you know, got something out of it as a 19-year-old kid. Came home from that and um, decided to, uh, you know, enroll into uh, Lackawanna College. And getting that education, the whole reason I joined the military in the first place. And I got two semesters in and we got a warning order for Iraq. But Iraq was a volunteer deployment for anybody who was in Bosnia. It's just the way how the National Guard worked. Like you had to be home so many times before they could tell you to go again. But you could volunteer for it. So Joe raised his hand and I was like, man, you really want to go, man? Like, So I sat on it for a little bit and I'm like, you know, maybe I should just go too if he's going. And I got to tell you, that was, uh, Bridget, the best decision I ever made. You know, going to Bosnia was one thing, but when I went to Iraq, I became an NCO. So, you know, I became a sergeant and I saw the big picture, um, you know, put in some dangerous situations over there. And I realized this isn't about me wearing this uniform. It's about us. Whether the political reason we should be in Iraq or not, that didn't matter. At that time, what mattered was the people from the left and right of me and myself trying to get home, you know, mm -hmm. just having a mission to do. And that's what was important at that time. So I saw the big picture of being a part of something bigger than myself. Mm -hmm. So I loved it so much. I loved being a soldier. That deployment just changed my whole mindset of being a, being in the military. I read my contract was over there and so did Joe. And when we came home from Iraq in June of 06, um, I enrolled right back into school. And I got two more semesters at Lackawanna College, got my associate's degree. And I was looking at furthering my education some more when we got a warning order for Afghanistan. Same ballpark, volunteer mission. I raised my hand right away. Like, oh, yeah, man. I mean, this seems like a good time. Like, I just graduated. So let's move forward. Joe, on the other hand, stayed back. Joe was, uh, he was now married and they're, him and his wife were trying to start a family. But he's like, well, I just can't volunteer for stuff anymore, man. So I think you should stay back with me and we'll deploy again to Iraq in a year with uh, a different brigade, which was on our schedule in the 109th Infantry, the unit we were in. Uh, this deployment I was going, I was going with a whole different battalion, the 103rd Armored. 
but I told him like, dude, sorry, cut this cord off. I went, um, even though he wanted me, didn't want me to go. Well, on this deployment, um, it was 2008, beginning of 2008 when we got there and we were, um, part of what's called the reconstruction teams in Afghanistan. So each province in Afghanistan had a reconstruction team to help build, rebuild parts of Afghanistan that uh, maybe the Taliban was building, or they just, you know, are completely behind. Uh, it's, you know, they're, it's not westernized like we are over here. So we're like renovating hospitals, building wells for villages so they didn't have to travel far, just get clean drinking water, uh, recreational centers for kids. It was pretty neat, like more of a humanitarian side of things. Our job in the PRT was, my platoon's job, we were the security force. Combat arms personnel were mainly the security force for the core PRT, which is like your civil affairs, uh, U.S. civilian engineers. Uh, when they would have meetings with village elders or local government, we would pull security for them and we'd escort them to point A to point B. So um, that's that was our job, just being their escort and their security. Well, like I said, our civil affairs officers, when we would escort them, every single one of them, they would sit in the backseat of our vehicles, Humvees or MRAPs, whatever we had. And Every civil affairs officer did that except for one. And this gentleman, whose name was Major Scott Haggerty. He liked to be in charge of the vehicle he was in, which basically puts him in the shotgun seat. So on this four-day mission we had in this little village called Zormont, we we're going to build a future site, future school. Um, I saw on the roster Major Haggerty was going to be in my vehicle. So no harm, no foul, dude. You want to be in charge of the vehicle today? That's cool. I will be your gunner. And I'm going to put my gunner, Craig Rains, as a passenger in a different vehicle. Like, no big deal at all. I never made a big deal out of it. Like, that's fine, man. I'll get behind that gunner's hatch. That's a fun job anyway. So um, the fourth day being out on this mission, which was our final day, we looked at the site of the school. and What we had left, we had to go back to the FOB we were staying at uh, for these past four days, pack up our stuff, fuel up, and head back to our home in Gardez. Well, I won't get too deep into it, but there was a, a different route we had to take through um, uh, get back to Gardez. Because um, the route we were taking uh, seemed a little dangerous. We had intel that maybe there was something hap going to happen. So we pulled out our maps and found a different route that we were, none of us were familiar with. But it looked a lot more open and I, I'd imagine a lot more safer. So we decided to do that. Now on this route... Like I said before, none of us were on it before, but for the first time ever in Afghanistan, off the roads was bright green grass. And I know that sounds weird, but like, you know, I've been here, I've been in this country for three months now and this, seeing this beautiful vegetation over there. Like it's a, we've been in a lot of parts in the country and this is the first time we're seeing anything like this. I'm like, who the heck is watering the grass in Afghanistan? It's beautiful here, right? <laughs> you know, we have a little laugh. The next thing I remember, Bridget, I saw nothing but black and what I was hearing, um, you know, when you put your head underwater, mm -hmm. and it's like a, it's like a faint noise. Yeah. Like that's the best way I could describe what I was hearing. It sounded like my head was underwater and I felt a momentum. And in my mind, I'm saying to myself, what the heck is going on right now? Mm -hmm. The next thing I come to, 
And I open my eyes, big, beautiful sky. It's like 2.30 in the afternoon over there. Why am I looking at the sky? Holy jeez. My feet are almost 90 degree backwards and I'm full of blood. Vehicle's completely destroyed. We just hit an IED. Mm, All I wanted to do was assess the situation. Like, mm -hmm. are we getting ambushed? Is anybody else hurt? You know, I can't even defend myself. I don't have a working weapon on me. I can't even get up and move at this point. I'm completely useless at this point and just really bleeding out. I'm thinking to myself, this is it. I'm going to die. The medic got to me, Doc Jones. Doc Eric Jones, Air Force medic. I said to Doc, I was like, hey, how's everybody else doing? And he said, we're working on them. They're fine. They're good. So Doc starts working on my right leg immediately um, to stop the bleeding. Pressure dressing, I'm still bleeding. Puts a tourniquet on me, slows the bleeding down. They, uh, Him and a few other guys put me on a litter, and they carry me behind an MRAP for cover, waiting for the medevac chopper to come down. When they carried me over there, they walked me right past two body bags. That was specialist Derek Holland, who was driving the vehicle that day. And Major Scott Haggerty of Stillwater, Oklahoma, uh, mm. took my seat. Uh, Derek was 20 years old, just just turned 20. So he's a kid still. <sighs> so I think to myself, like, what do I have to complain about? I didn't think about that right then and there, but looking back, um, you know, Major Scott, Major Haggerty initially kind of saved my life that day. Right. I could have, I'm, I'm sit, I sit in that seat every other day, except for that day. So what do I have to complain about? Medivac chopper came, they put me on the litter or they put me on the Blackhawk. Meanwhile, there was another survivor in the vehicle. And this was an Afghan governor who was in the back seat of our vehicle, who we were escorting. And this uh, Afghan governor had his own security details and other vehicles as well. So not only did major or did, did this um this governor get on the vehicle as well, but one of his escorts, he wasn't wounded or anything, but just to have one of his own with him, you know, like language barriers, stuff like that. And I'm laying on in the litter. To the right of me is this governor. And I gotta say, I'm 24 years old when this is going on now, right? I know the um uh Governor is much, I mean, my guess is probably his early 50s. Like he was definitely, you know, up there in age. And he's verbally, you know, expressing his pain. Right? Mm -hmm. And he's laying to the right of me, right next to me. And I don't give a crap what your faith is, what your beliefs are. All I know in this moment, I'm just going to grab this. I took my right hand and I grabbed his left and I just squeezed it. And I just thought maybe the both of us can get out of here, you know. Okay. Well, they gave me a shot of morphine before they put me on the uh, Blackhawk. Um, when it started to wear off, I, all I wanted to do was kind of look at my legs, right? So every time I would try to sit up and get a good a good look to see exactly what's going on there, right? Like I'm kind of like wearing down a little bit. I'm just waiting for this chopper to take me there. So all these things are going through my head. And as I would try to sit up and look at my legs, I would get one of these, right? Yeah. A little while later, you know, a few moments later, I, would, I look up again, try to see my legs and I'll get one of these once again. And finally, after probably a third time of that, I look back, who's pushing my head back like that? And I look back and it's that Afghan police officer 
who was with us. Mm -hmm. And I look up at him in the face and he just shakes his head. And he just kind of gives me one of these, like kind of like relax, dude. Mm. Kind of one of those, like, just take it easy. And in a in an environment where sometimes it never happened to us, but we've heard from other units where the, the police, Afghan police officers or uh, military we'd work with, one would just go rogue and start shooting us. So we were always told not to trust these guys. Well, uh, obviously, this guy showing me compassion, I thought was just, uh, you know, it's what I needed at the moment, especially from kind of open my eyes a little bit. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. So we got the Bagram Air Base and one of the main U.S. hospitals in Afghanistan. Doctor said to me uh, after they got, you know, they brought me in the hospital, did some x-rays. We're going to have to do surgery on your right hip immediately. And uh, I was like, Doc, you do what you got to do, right? So right before they brought me in for surgery, once again, that Afghan police officer walked into my room. He starts talking to me, but and he does this. And as he's talking to me, I don't understand a word he's saying. Mm -hmm. We all know body language, right? Yeah. And yeah. that kind of like, you know, it really opened my mind a lot. Like, you know, man, here's a dude who's just born in this part of the world and yep. you know, being an awesome human being right now to me, who he's probably getting from his side, like, these Americans are effing idiots. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, so, you know, you know I, I don't know if he's still alive or anything, but man, if I could have a beer with that guy, like, <laughs> I, I don't even know who he is. I can't even remember what he looks like, but I just like that day with him, man, I'll never forget that. So that's why I do this all the time. Yeah. I went under for surgery. Uh, the next thing I remember, there's a nurse pulling a breathing tube out of my mouth. And uh having me calm down and when she finally gets a breathing tube out now my voice is all scratchy at this point and um i can tell i'm in a much nicer hospital than the one in afghanistan and she says hey just so you know you're at launchul air base in romstein germany so i'm in a whole different continent at this oh. point so all that in between time of travel i don't remember any of it oh. and um uh Later on that day, a doctor came in and says, we think your right, your right leg, we're going to salvage. We're going to keep your right leg. Um, it's pretty beat up, a lot of hardware in there. I still had some more surgeries to go, but your left leg, we're going to have to remove at the knee. Mm -hmm. And Britt, I got to say, I, at that time, I was, I, I could say with confidence, I was very optimistic. I'm like, doc, you do what you got to do. All right. I mean, I'm just happy to be here. As we move forward, a few more surgeries, and I finally got the green light to go back to the States. Mm. My home was going to be Walter Reed Army Medical Center, one of the main uh, U.S. military hospitals in Washington, D.C. And I was in ICE. They put me in ICU as soon as I got there. More surgeries, more x-rays. But that third day of being there, my family finally got the green light to come down. All right. So one by one, they would come into ICU. My mom, my dad. Uh, one of my siblings, um, but eventually there was Joe. And I could say just like before, I felt pretty good. I mean, I'm about this. Like I, like I said, if things went the way they went every other day, I would have been killed. So what do I have to complain about? And I remember just uh, seeing my brother and, you know, the reunion I'm having with everybody. And 
at one point, Joe says to me, I should have just gone with you. Hold on. Like, time out a second, man. Get that out of your head right now. But knowing my brother and how he was, I could definitely see him acting like that. And I'm like, dude, you can't be thinking like that, man. Like, that's just the wrong attitude to have. And even the humor I would try to give with him, like, hey, man, look, I'm here. I'm alive. My junk didn't get blown off. I'm doing pretty good, right? <laughs> like, like, let's have – try to be funny about it. <laughs> and I got to tell you, Bridget, my time at Walter Reed, I got out of ICU. I went to something less intense in the hospital. And then um, Ward 57, you know, a few more surgeries there. But, you know, definitely not all these wires coming out of me. And eventually I was an outpatient right on base. I, I lived uh, right on base in a um, hotel room. And I would just wheel a physical therapy every day until I was able to walk. And you think of it as like a somber place. This is now 2008. The surge in Iraq happened a year prior. Every summer when the snow melts, Taliban come and play in Afghanistan. So at this time I was there, there was people everywhere. Right? Mm. Like uh, In my situation, like you know, missing limbs or burn casualties or whatever it may be. Um, so you think of it as like, you know, like I said, a somber place, like careers are coming to an end, uh, you know, lives are altered, you know, some spouses are leaving their injured loved ones. But I got to tell you what, it was a complete, the attitude of people, it was like the complete opposite. And I was just like, so taken back by this, this warrior spirit, these, you know, guys are having, guys and girls are having. And I personally think it probably helped me in my recovery. Not at the time, but looking back, I'm like, I couldn't imagine having these people around me at the VA, you know, and nothing, I'm not here to bash the VA or anything, but I, that demographic of people is a lot different than men and women in their 20s, 30s, still busting each other's chops, giving each other crap, which is a better branch. Like that's still going on here right at Walter Reed. And it seemed like nobody felt sorry for themselves. And that was a huge push in my recovery. Looking back, I truly do believe that. And you know, I got my independence back. Uh, I started walking, learned how to snowboard once again with a special leg. I went out to Vail, Colorado, learned how to snowboard, yeah. introduced to sled hockey. Like life was good moving forward, right? You know, it's uh, life's going to be different. My career came to an abrupt end, but you know, I'm going to make the best of this. Moved back to Pennsylvania after I got out of the army. Um, I started dating a girl. And she is a nurse at one of the local hospitals here in Scranton. And every year around Christmas time, they have a black tie event uh, for, you know, for the, uh, the lower staff. The higher staff has a black tie event for the lower staff in, in, in the department she works in. Kind of like, a, hey, thanks for the awesome year, guys. We're going to get up next year. Kind of one of those things. Mm -hmm. It's a week before Christmas in 2010. I'm getting ready for this event. I get out of the shower. I put my prosthetic on. Um, I end up uh, putting my suit pants on and just a t-shirt because I'm going to do my hair before I get fully dressed. So I'm in the bathroom and I'm doing my hair you know, with the hair gel in there. And all of a sudden my phone rings and I just let it go to voicemail. So I finish doing my hair. I wash the hair gel out of my hands. You know, I look at my phone and I see it's my mom. So I listen to the voicemail and she says, you need to call me immediately. And she's distraught on the other end. So I'm like, oh, geez. So I give her a call back. And she picks up the phone. She says my name so ever somber. I'm like, Mom, what's the matter? 
Joe committed suicide. Worst day of my life, man. How could I get this second chance at life and have my own twin brother take his away? Like, I was crushed. <laughs> the next, uh, I got to tell you, when those words came out of her mouth, just exactly how I said it, I hit the ground and I just screamed. And, you know, and the girl I was dating at the time, she heard it too. She started bawling. I can't remember what else was said on that phone call, but I know we ended with I love you and I love you too. And I stood up and I walked probably six to eight steps into the kitchen and every single ounce of alcohol I had, I poured it right down the drain. Um, I grew up with an alcoholic and I knew right then and there, if I grabbed something, I could bridge up my life was, you know, very next thing I did, I went right into my laptop and I deleted my Facebook and I just didn't want to deal with the storm that was going to happen mm -hmm. after that. But <laughs> it didn't take long till an hour later, my phone was just going off the hook, left and right, left and right. Um, some people showed up at my house and uh, man, it was just so surreal. The next day I had to go to Joe's house. And there's his wife. There's his three kids. Joe, at this point, was active duty in the in the National Guard. He was a training NCO for the 109th Infantry. Before he was a training NCO, he was a corrections officer at a state prison here uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania, SCI Waymart. So at his house, some of his CO buddies are there. Some of our Army buddies are there. Some of my family is there. Some of uh, my friends are friends from high school. The house is just packed with people. And you can imagine the energy going on, like, yep. you know, well, I just like, all right, what do we do now? What, what goes on now? What's, what's our next step? Okay. So today is Sunday, December 19th. The next day, somebody's going to be at the armory where Joe works. Oh, it'll be open. Okay, great. All right. You and you, I looked at my buddy Dave and my cousin Paul, and I said, guys, come to the armory with me. We'll go talk to Sergeant Peterson and start the logistics of this. Next day, they drove me up to the armory. There was Sergeant Peterson, our readiness NCO of, of the unit, and he came over, gave me a big hug, get his condolences. And uh, on the other side of the room, there was a desk. There was Joe's desk. Grabbed a box. I started putting stuff in the box. All right, Sergeant Peterson, so what, what happens now? Paperwork have to be signed. Like the military is going to pay for Joe's funeral. Okay, perfect. Excellent. All right, let's start that right now. You, I need you to go talk to supply. It's going to be an open casket. I want Joe in his dress blues. I want to make sure his uniform's up to date with all his awards. Knock that out for me. Hey, you, why don't you come go to St. Rosalima Church? My brother was Catholic. So we're going to talk to the church about having the funeral services there. And you, I need you to go to priest funeral home in Carbondale. Go with Stephanie, go pick out a casket. And all I started doing, Reggie, I just started delegating all yep. these little tasks. Just keep myself going. It's like, here I am, like these jobs need to get done. So let's knock them all out. Not even processing what the hell I'm preparing myself for. Does that make sense? Yep. I hear you fully. And the day came, you know, I shaved my beard, you know, squeezing my dress blues that are hanging on the wall there. 
went up to Joe's casket, give him the final salute. That's that. Now what? Yeah. You ever hear Idle Hands is the Devil, Bridget? Mm -mm. Idle Hands is the Devil, like when you just like, when you don't have anything to do, you find yourself trouble. Yes. Exactly what I did. And, um, and my mentality went right back somewhat to when I first joined the army, making mm -hmm. it all about me, mm -hmm. feeling sorry for myself, playing the victim, thinking the world owes me everything. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, where does playing a victim get you? Literally nowhere. Exactly. Yep. I just started to self-destruct. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. You know, dysfunctional veteran, one of those t-shirts I wore, and like, you know what I did for my country in reality? Nobody owes me shit. Mm -hmm. Part of my language. You're good. Because <laughs> um, it, it's the truth. Nobody owes us anything. No matter what happens in our lives, nobody owes us anything. Yeah. And I just started to go downhill. So moving forward. Uh, I became very close with Joe's widow, Steph. I mean, she was always a good friend of mine, Stephanie. Um, you know, she was, I mean, she's my sister-in-law, but she, we, we just had that ball busting like brother and sister would, mm -hmm. you know? And so she, like, I obviously her and I became very close, closer after that, just more of a friendship. Um, Cause I mean, she was struggling too. I mean, she would apologize to me and I said, Steph, Joe's my brother. I knew him my whole life, but you have three kids with him. I can't even imagine that. You know, and they, those kids are without a, a father right now. Mm -hmm. They could tell the bond her and I had. And she told me at one point, you know, Joe was so proud of you, like things you've accomplished after I lost my leg. And Joe and I didn't have that relationship. I think I don't think siblings do where they compliment each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I would never hear stuff like that from Joe. Like when I went out to Vail, Colorado snowboarding, um, I made the front page of the Vail Daily paper out there. And it's just... You know, me on a bunny slope snowboarding, and you can see my prosthetic on my pants, right? So, you know, those machines where you put a quarter in, you open it, and you take the paper. Mm -hmm. well, I put a quarter in, I open it, and I took every damn paper because <laughs> I have a damn cover, and I'm taking these home. <laughs> and, you know, I took them home with me, and I give them to my friends and stuff. Oh, look at that. I made the front page, you know? Um, so Joe would show his buddies all that. Yeah, look at Earl, you know? And I never knew this stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, the pride he was taking in my accomplishments. So I kind of like, God damn, if he was proud of me then, he'd be proud of me now. Like, I can't act like this anymore. So I didn't happen overnight, but I turned myself around and I just started challenging myself more and more physically. Like, um, I just, uh, I started off small. I just ruck marched. You know, anybody out there who's in the military, you know what ruck marching is, but Basically, what ruck marching is, I mean, from you know, a recreational standpoint, you put weight in a backpack, you wear it, and you just get, just walk. You get your miles in, right? And I would do that for recreation just to, you know, get out there and get some exercise. And eventually, I got a running blade, and I started running and got highly involved in CrossFit and CrossFit Scranton right downtown. And it just started snowballing. I started challenging myself more and more. I'm going to do this for Joe. I'm going to do this for Joe. You know, I would just say that to myself. And it led to, it wasn't even about Joe anymore. It's just a passion for physical fitness. Okay. So like, it just kind of opened my eyes a lot. Like, you know, and eventually I, uh, somebody asked me to run a Spartan race. 
And at the time, I did Tough Mudders and I done Warrior Dashes. So I think I got a little cocky. Look, this Spartan race. Yeah, I've done those before. Like, well, I guess this typical Spartan race, it was eight miles and I've done like longer distance before. But it was a terrain of this eight mile race. It was up and down Black Diamond Mountain oh. in Wintergreen, Virginia. And I remember the night before, I'm going with my friend Amanda Sullivan up, <laughs> you know to where we would start this race. And I'm just like, this is what we're doing tomorrow? Like, oh no. Like, what did I get myself? I did not train for it. Like, like oh, this is going to suck. Well, <laughs> the morning of the race in one of the lodges is where you would pick up your bib. There's these men and women in multi-cam uniforms. And like, one of the uh, people in uniform came up to me with his hand out and said, hey, are you Earl Granville? And I look at this guy. And it's, his name is Noah Galloway. And I don't know if you're familiar with the name Noah Galloway. Um, Noah, he was in 101st Airborne. His vehicle hit a roadside bomb, and he lost his left arm and his left leg in Iraq from this IED blast. And Noah was also on, you know, afterwards, he was on Dancing with the Stars. And he was even on the cover of Men's Health magazine. As he's missing an arm and missing a leg. So cool. I know who this guy is, right? <laughs> so as I fangirl a little bit, like, holy crap, no. Like, he's like, I I've been following this guy for some time now, right? And I don't mean to be all make it weird. It's like, dude, you're a big inspiration of mine. Like, I look up to you. Like, and it's not even just like, not just his accomplishes, but the way he carries himself. He's not like bro vet in your face all the time. Like, yeah, I'm awesome. Just a humble dude. And that's what I like in people. Like, you know, you don't let it get to your head. And that's what I love about this guy. So I said, you're here to do the race. I'm like, yeah, I'm here with Operation Enduring Warrior. And I'm like, so OEW, their mission is to honor, empower, and motivate wounded and disabled veterans. And now we brought in law enforcement as well to continue to stay active after their injuries, not let their injuries define who they are. And the unwritten rule, I feel like what we do, being a part of something bigger than yourselves, just like when you wore that uniform. So... He said, you want to run along with us? I'm like, dude, I would be honored. Like, absolutely, man. So we get to the start of this Spartan race. Um, be right before we take off, the rest I met the rest of the team, all in their uniforms and the little backpacks they have. And we go to a secluded area, and they take out of their bags a gas mask, down their gas mask. And I was like, do I have to do that? Like, holy gee. Like, and this is what they do to be a MAT team member, like to help with their mission. It takes away the identity of themselves. So we all focus on the individual, their honoree or adaptive athlete they're assisting. And the gas mask is also a little reminder of adversity that our honorees are going through. So it's, I ran the race alongside these guys. Really, the race really humbled me. Like, you know, as I went in a little cocky, like, it kind of almost destroyed me. Uh, was at the time, it was the most physical thing I've done after I lost my leg, like, like 2013 time frame. Afterwards, Noah says, You think about what do you think about joining us? And I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for something like this. But then again, I thought, if Noah Galloway is asking me to join this team, you know, I'm gonna, I shouldn't shy this away you know the eminem song what's the one uh from eight mile right in the beginning of the song you get one shot one opportunity are you gonna take yep. it or you let slip that's what i thought of i'm like i can't say no to this like right? 
What's that? This is it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I didn't know what the future was holding ahead after I went through because we have to go through an indoctrination to become a masked athlete. And I have to say, every masked athlete is current or prior military. That's mm -hmm. one of the, uh, you know, criteria to become a masked athlete. So um, I was sent to Fort Bragg, North Carolina with nine other people. And they just put us through hell for a weekend. Very military style, like that boot camp, in your face, like just giving you shit. And I got to tell you, there was 10 people started, five of us finished, and I was one of them. And um, Bridget, for the first time in a long time, I felt like I've earned a spot on a team. Hmm. And yeah, I played hockey, but it was like, hey, you want to play hockey? There you go. And there's nothing wrong with that. But mm -hmm. the way I've accomplished it this way, I feel like it was a kick in the ass I needed. Because then my mindset went right back to that Iraq deployment. Right. This isn't about me. It's about us. I can continue to serve without wearing a uniform. You know, and I am wearing a uniform, ironically, but like it's not combat boots and a rifle overseas. It's gas mask and you know, multi-cam uniform. Being a mentor for our honorees. Um, you know, and I just like the military, I have to make sure I'm in top physical shape. You know, to because I don't want, you know, I, the last thing I want to be is out of shape for our honoree who's just smoking me on the course, right? <laughs> you know, we we want to, you know, it. We want to empower, yep. not hold their hands through a course, you know. And eventually, what it all turns down to is that uh, there may be a day they don't need us anymore, and that that's the way it should be. You know what I mean? Like that's that's success right there. Like. Thank you guys so much. I can handle this or whatever it may be, you know, and it's, it's for the first time in a long time, like I said, of being a part of something, but I also have a purpose. And what this has done is you're, you're building relationships with your honorees and just my team in general. And I realized this is something so much more healthier in my life that I needed. You know, when I, I always focus on um, three P's now that I'm a public speaker I truly believe, Bridget, we need three P's in our life. Three very important. You must have a purpose. You must have a passion. Hmm. You have to be part of something bigger than yourself. And my examples, like in the military, it was so easy. Like it was, you know, when, I think when you wear that uniform, all three of those are filled in. My purpose, hmm. I'm a soldier, my passion, I was an infantryman. Part of something bigger than myself, that's self-explanatory. Now my purpose is I'm a public speaker. My passion is physical fitness. Yeah. And I'm part of something bigger than myself. That's what I do with these organizations, right? So as we move forward, um, the recipe to find these three Ps, a good attitude, because I got to tell you, that horrible attitude, I just started down, you yeah. know, really spiraled down. Comfort zone, you have to step out of it. Because if you stay stagnant, you'll never find what you're looking for. And number three, community. That could be very broad, but I truly believe that's building those relationships. That's the organizations you're a part of. Or, you know, we look at the situation with COVID right now. I look at it, the gyms I'm a part of. We're more than just physical fitness. We're about community. So it's the community helps you carry that weight of adversity together. You know, sometimes it might not be a, uh, you know, a, a psychiatrist or a counselor. It could be, you know, your neighbors, but you have to show that vulnerability to understand you don't have to carry the weight by yourself. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's why this is called the gathering movement, because it's not about just me or you. It's literally about everyone who hears this story today and says, 
fuck, like I am part of something bigger than myself and I want a community. I want a family. Like we can't do this journey alone. And I'm just so grateful of every single word you just said, because I'm just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the power, never underestimate the power of community. Now I don't talk politics, all right? But we're looking at the idea of what's happening in this country right now where businesses are falling short. This is where it comes to a good community to step up, right? I know um, my gym, Brown's Gym and Clark Summit, they, uh, you know, Pennsylvania had a like a two-week mandate. No gyms are allowed to be open. And the owner who's been in business for 28 years, him and his wife, they're like, we can't survive through this. So what they did was uh, they, they opened early and they said, look, we're not here to tyrant the government or anything like that we're not here to do this but us staying closed my two my options are this he said if we stay closed there's no way we're going to recover if we open up we might be able to recover and as soon as they opened back up and they announced that i jumped right down there and i just started making videos of me doing deadlifts come to brown shim if you don't work out that's fine come buy a t-shirt let's support these guys stay open that's what a strong community is supposed to do carry the weight of adversity together and all, you know, I got to tell you how much protein I bought off of those guys just to make, just to do my part. It's like, hey, man, I'll throw it in my car. I travel a lot on the road. You know what I mean? But that's the power of what a community can do. Yeah. Never carry the weight of adversity by yourself. You know, inside of us, we all have those bad days. They're going to hold us down. You know, most of us, we're resilient. We can figure it out. I think all of us are deep down inside. But sometimes the weight could get so heavy and we don't take care of it. That weight's going to hold us down and we're going to be miserable. And that's where if you don't get it worked on, if you don't get it fixed, if you don't try to step out of that comfort zone to find the path you're looking for for happiness, it's going to hold you down. And you, no one wants to live a life like that. And I have an example right here to show you what I mean by that. So, Bridget, this is Cindy the Cinderblock. <laughs> Cindy Cinder, wah, wah. <laughs> what Cindy represents is that heavy mental diversity that we all face as human beings, guilt, stress, depression, anxiety, the situation right now with COVID, loss of a loved one. You get the idea. All those bad days, the weight of adversity that holds us down, doesn't want us to get out of bed, whatever it may be. The idea of Cindy is when I run races with the other organization, I'm part of the Oscar Mike Foundation. I'm trying to point at my hat here. The camera's back. <laughs> the Oscar Mike Foundation. What we do is um, I help run Team Oscar Mike, uh, which one of our components in Oscar Mike is uh, we help veterans through Spartan races, kind of like a little, little similar to OEW. Um, when I bring Cindy out on the race with me, I'll start off with her. She gets pretty heavy after a while. So luckily I have a teammate. I have a team itself to help me carry the weight together. I look at my buddy, Joey Decker. And I'm like, hey, dude, want to help me carry this? And he'll carry Sydney for a little while. And somebody else will. Maybe they'll carry it together. Someone carries a brick. The other carries a chain. The idea is nobody's carrying it alone. That's the same up in here. That vulnerability can save your life, ladies and gentlemen. And the hardest thing sometimes I feel like, especially in like military culture, is being vulnerable. Mm. We understand the power of what a vulnerability can do to the right people at the right time. It could really turn your life around because as human beings, we're not allowed to, we, we're not meant to carry this on our, our own. We're supposed to build relationships. We're supposed to have those connections and who we could trust. And the reality of it, sometimes it might not even be your family. Like it's 
but you have to take those leaps. And also, it's also us for the ones who are in good spirits to look out for one another. I can't, you hear me uh, just, you know, hitting that stake all through this conversation, especially during these hard times with COVID. More important now than ever, we need each other. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I'm just so, uh, so beyond deeply inspired. And what I find just so beautiful is these experiences of, I think of everything polarity. We have death and we have life. We have contraction. We have expansion. We have um, down and we have up. And when we can take the experience of death, of physical death, of loss, um, of loss of a limb, of death of a career, a relationship, and actually turn that into something that is life, like that is the greatest gift. And you are here like literally giving that gift to everyone who hears you speak and your presence, like you just embody it. And I'm just so grateful that you're here doing this work in the world. Like I could almost cry because it's like, yes, 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 yes. Thank you so much, Bridget. Thank you. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. And I would love to have you just share if people, how people can support your your mission even more. Do you have links? Do you have um, donation pages where people can, can contact you? Please share them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, if anybody's interested, and, you know, this is what I do for a living. Um, I got, and I don't do it for the money, man. I just enjoy doing this. Like, especially in Northeastern Pennsylvania, man. Like, if it's just if it's just a day on the road, man, I mean, that's, that makes life so much easier. But um, you want to check out our organizations, Operation Enduring Warrior, the Oscar Mike Foundation, Warrior Strong, you know, Tom Tice's organization that you know. Um I got to we're more than just finding that physical fitness and helping these uh, men and women reach their physical goals. It's about, you know, one thing in the military, man, when we join, most of us join as soon as we become adults, like graduate high school, boom, off the basic training or boot camp, whatever. So your whole adult life is combat boots and a rifle. No matter what your branch is, no matter what your job is, you're a part of a culture that's very unique. And it's all you know as an adult. So when we take that uniform off, I feel like a lot of a struggle with this. What I find in these organizations, it fills in those gaps of what we miss so deeply when we once served in the military. So, I mean, check us out, man. Like I said, Operation During Warrior, Warrior Strong, the Oscar Mike Foundation, uh, Achilles Freedom Team. I, I wear a lot of hats with these guys. and uh, um, I can't tell you enough. It's when we find the power of a great community and being a part of something bigger than ourselves with a mission, you know, there's no stopping us. I couldn't agree more. And I'm just so grateful that we can have these types of conversations that allow us to reflect on the most challenging experiences of our entire life and then show people that we can do this in a community. We can handle this. We can persevere. There is hope in everything that we do. So Absolutely. Thank you. thank you. Thank you so much, Earl, for being here. I'm just I want to I want to leave you with this right here. Two things. You know, when I poured that alcohol down the drain. You know, don't get me wrong, I drink now, but I barely, you know, I have a beer dinner or whatever. But something to think about. Sometimes think about attitude. We can't control what happens to us sometimes, but we can always control how we're going to react to it. We always have the power to do that. And one more thing. My buddy Norby Lara. Norby served in Iraq. He was a master sergeant as an MP. He lost his arm from an RPG blast. I think back in 2006, 
uh, his vehicle caught on fire. He lost an arm and he lost a lung. Norby put a quote up that I on Facebook years ago, and I still have the original what I wrote it on right here. And I think it's I just keep it right next to my computer because I think it's important. I've learned that the best way to overcome my own obstacles is to help people with theirs. So I want to give Norby credit for that. So always remember that, guys. Thank you, Norby. We love that. <laughs> we love that. We love that. Um, yeah, being of service, I think, is is really, truly like a human, um, just innate want for all of us. And, you know, there's so many different ways that that can look. So just thank you for that reminder today. Thank you for, for sharing everything that you did. And I'm just so grateful that we were able to connect in this way. So thank you, Earl, for being here. Bridget, by all means. I mean, thank you so much. If you like a Maybe in the future, have Johnny and I on together. Why not, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome. Awesome. Bridget, thank you again and have a great day. Thank you, everyone. Okay.